Hi, I'm Craig Turner, host of the Founders for Good podcast. I've spent years working in the tech for good space, and in that time I've had the privilege of interviewing inspiring impact founders, and I want to share those conversations with you. Why? Because these are the people leading the way when it comes to solving the world's most pressing issues, from climate to homelessness to health to education and much more. In these conversations, I dig into why these issues exist, possible solutions, how the founder and their business is approaching the problem, and their best kept secrets on how to build a for good company. My hope is that this will inspire you to be part of the solution and do your bit in making the world a better place. Thanks for tuning in to the Founders for Good podcast. Dan Garrett is the CEO and co-founder of Fairwell. For everyone, losing a loved one is one of the hardest things that you'll need to deal with. Trying to process your emotions whilst having the pressure of deciding on funeral plans and dealing with probate. Most people end up turning to their local high street provider, who cost thousands of pounds and often don't reflect the wishes of the family or the deceased. Dan recognised the opportunity to innovate an industry that hasn't changed for hundreds of years, even though everyone will need to use it at some point in their life. So Dan founded Fairwell to build a tech platform that focuses on making it as easy, simple and affordable as possible for people to deal with death and provide a meaningful goodbye to their loved ones. Fairwill is now the largest will writer in the UK and one of the largest providers of probate and direct cremation services. And with a 4.9 rating on Trustpilot and multiple awards for their services, they must be doing something right. Hey Dan, thanks for coming to the show. How are you? Great, thank you. How are you? Thank you very much for having me. Good, good. So look, today we're chatting about Fairwill and your mission of changing the, the way the world thinks about death. And I guess it's one of those industries where you just don't think about it very much, let alone think about going into it as a kind of career or business venture. Just wondered if you could share a bit about how you came, like how you first came into contact with the industry and like what attracted you to the space. You're totally right that people don't think about it. And I think that's part of the appeal for me. On one hand, sometimes partly jokingly, but it's also true definitely said to people in the past it's great to go into into a sector where there is relatively little competition you know the average person running a funeral business or real writing business is literally in a kind of multi-generational uh family setup so there's not a lot of new entrance to it and as a result you know, as a first time founder it's great to not be swimming around with tons of other competitors but my route into it is not through you know the family funeral business, um, which doesn't exist, by the way. Uh, I'm a designer by background. Before that, did engineering and um, maths at university. And I ended up going to the Royal College of Arts and doing this amazing master's degree that split between Tokyo, New York, and London. And in Tokyo, I spent a few months working in geriatric care. Basically had this amazing team of design researchers, anthropologists, ethnographers. It was a very aging population in Japan. And we were based in this geriatric home. And and I felt like we really missed the point of being there as designers. All we focused on was the physical side of aging. It was kind of getting in and out of bed, up and down the stairs. And in reality, you have a bunch of people who are there, don't have their friends or family around, who are terrified of dying. And we didn't even get close to talking about it. So... I came away from it thinking, I don't really reckon we've tackled the biggest problem that people are going through. And, and when I arrived back in the UK, I spent, spent a couple of months in the death industry. So I was, I was sort of mystery shopping funeral directors as a bit of a hobby. Um, I got a qualification in will writing 
And I also helped a couple of people to file probate applications when their you know, friends of mine whose grandparents had, had died and just had this realization that this is you know, the biggest consumer industry that's been untouched, not just by technology, but by any kind of customer centricity. If you picture in your head, your local funeral director it is a borderline Dickensian brand proposition. And, you know, it isn't because it's macroeconomically impossible that, that this stuff hasn't changed. It's a hundred billion dollar plus global market. It isn't because it's technologically unfeasible. It's because there's this profound human aversion to talking about and thinking about death. We're literally neurologically hardwired to not have to think about our own inevitable mortality and, and demise. Otherwise, you just wouldn't be able to go about your day. So the same factors that just keep us being able to get out of bed in the morning and go to work also stop people from planning ahead properly. And also, interestingly, stop entrepreneurs and people who want to do things differently getting into the sector in the first place. So, you know, the same dynamics that make this tough for, for customers make this a really interesting space that's pretty greenfield when it comes to innovation. Yeah, it's so interesting to say, and and like I'm just thinking, like whenever you do drive past like a funeral, um, like a funeral directors, and you look in, it's like the shop window itself puts you off. Like they just look very morbid. It's just something like even if you were like, oh, I might pop in actually have a conversation, learn a bit more. Then you look at it, you're like, no, I don't want to go in there. Um, so I'm not surprised. Um, but like you said, it's a very attractive proposition in terms of like uh, um, a sector that definitely needs shaking up and innovating. Um, to your point, you know, a lot of us, um will have hopefully like very limited dealings with death in terms of like having to sort out a funeral, having to deal with it. Um, but it's something where you know, we're all going to die one day. It's, it's going to be something that affects all of us. Can you explain a bit more about like, you know, the average situation in the UK where, you know, a family member's passed away. What does that journey look like for the person trying to deal with all that stuff in terms of like emotions that they're processing, but also like what they actually legally and, and like logistically have to sort out? Yeah, definitely. So, so if we take the sort of median situation two-thirds of the people dealing with death are will be the kids of someone dying so you're talking about someone typically 45 55 years old often dealing with it for the first time again the on the on the brain side of it when you're when you've lost someone who who is really close to you if that's you know, it could be could be a parent or a spouse or a close friend but if we take parent in this situation this is an earth shattering event and bits of your brain literally don't function properly your amygdala and your hippocampus and you don't make decisions as you normally would so the typical journey for someone who doesn't know exactly what their parent would have wanted for a funeral which is seven out of eight people you know you're going to have rough cultural ideas of, of of what they're after but most people don't actually put a put a kind of detailed plan in place the, the typical journey, especially if we go kind of five years back in time, is basically to go to your local high street funeral director. It's very geographically um, well-established. And, and like you just said, it's the type of place that you've walked past or driven past a million times and never gone in, but you know where it is. So you go in there. In 2017, there was, a, I think it's 2017, there was a, a big study on the funeral industry done by the Competition Markets Authority. And one really interesting part of that was that 86% of people just don't shop around at all. So there's no other equivalent purchase. Imagine buying a fridge for £7,000 
and your buying journey is like, right, I'm going to walk out my house, go to the fridge shop, go to the fridge shop, spend seven grand. That's it. No research, no shopping around. Um, so, so that typically has been the average person's journey. People don't know exactly what they expect to spend. And nobody wants to look stingy when it comes to organizing a funeral. So there's a lot of upselling. There's a lot of, um, and, and, and it, I, I don't want to accuse anyone of doing this maliciously, but you know, the business model of a high street funeral director is you have very limited footfall. You might have one or two people coming in a day. Average high street funeral director will do probably 80, maybe a hundred funerals a year. So when someone comes in your front door, that's it's a you know it's a it's a rare event and and the goal for you as a business is going to be to help someone to do actually the more expensive type of funeral so 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 over the 10 years from 2007 to 2017 the average funeral price in the uk more than doubled with no corresponding development in service and you basically have a, a distressed customer making a distressed purchase and the dynamics of it overall basically have led people to just really overpaying for their funerals so that's the first bit of it you've got a body on your hands lots of people die you know most people are dying either uh, in hospital or at home majority dying in hospital they'll often go into uh, the morgue in a hospital if, if they're at home um, the, the the normal thing to do is to call a funeral director and they'll come and pick up um, the loved one's body and uh, so, which is another quite interesting dynamic of, okay, well, there's a, there's a body in the house. You need to pick them up. You call a funeral director. Actually, that person is then just going to do the funeral by proxy. So it's a bit of a, whoever has the body ends up doing the funeral situation. So that's the first step basically is, is, is trying to uh, find someone who's going to do the funeral, which you're often doing in a distressed situation without shopping around. Then typically that process at the moment is it's actually kind of, slow across the sector so you might be three weeks until a funeral takes place and during that process you need to do quite a lot of paperwork you need to ascertain who has the rights to organize the funeral in the first place which might be defined inside a will or if not then it's kind of the laws of intestacy in terms of um, you know basically who's your next of kin if you're Jewish or you're Muslim, much more likely to have a funeral within the next 48 hours. So you need to do all this kind of expedited paperwork and, and, and everything like that. Um, so, so yeah, that's the first stage is this mad rush where someone who you deeply love has just died. It's an overwhelming emotional experience. You don't know how to, you, you know, you're unlikely to know exactly what the person wanted. You're unlikely to know what to do because you probably haven't organized a funeral before. And you have to do this equivalent of planning a wedding in terms of scale complexity formality under duress in 24 hours it's a it's a very painful challenging product situation for for people who are under massive amounts of emotional torment um yeah so so i'm really selling it here <laughs> I mean that that was I mean you just covered about three of my questions if wasn't it that was super insightful and um yeah it's very different I've only had one experience which was my nan passing away and thankfully she was one of those three out of ten that was really well planned so like the the ceremony was completely detailed out everything was paid for it just made actually it, life for everyone else so much easier not that's what we were thinking about but like you, you look back at it, actually that was much less painless than it probably would be if we're all like running around trying to figure out what to do 
Um, and I was going to ask like why you feel that the, the kind of funeral director space hasn't really been innovated in the last like 10 to 15 years, but it sounds like the pessimist to me is like, there's no incentive for them to do so. Like they don't get a huge amount of customers. They have to maximize the revenue from each customer. Um, and if they do start better education, those customers, then customers may start spending less or making different decisions and using them, which is not in their interest. So it's it's like a horrible situation. It's a really, really interesting question. There are multiple factors to it. And I, I want to reiterate that everyone who works in the funeral industry, for the most part, there will obviously be exceptions, is a really kind, compassionate, caring person. There's a lot of other industries that you could work in that are that are outwardly probably a little sunnier. Um, so in my interaction and exposure to the whole funeral industry, I've met some of the most compassionate customer orientated people I've, I've met in my entire career. There, but there are factors that have hampered its innovation. The main one is, is how complicated customer acquisition is. There are basically no scalable ways of acquiring customers that aren't based on the high street. So, you know, because if you're advertising for, at need funeral, as in someone has just died and, and you need to deal with the body, you, you're very unlikely to, to for your advert to hit someone who's currently in, in, in that buying journey who isn't already sorting it out. So customer acquisition has just been a question of high street space. And that then introduces these dynamics of, well, you have relatively low footfall. You know, the, the brand proposition has to be kind of pinned to the average cultural expectation of a kind of dignified, behind-closed-doors, traditional funeral, because you don't want to be the wacky local funeral director and be putting people off, and that isn't what, what's, what people are kind of ready for. So I think the other part of it is there's a bit of that. There's two things that, pe- that people want to do when they're organizing a funeral. The, the main North Star motivation in whatever bit of research we've done has been done externally, works internationally in terms of market research is is that people want to do right by the person who died so so that's the north star of it and the other bit which is a pretty powerful motivator is you don't want to get it wrong you you don't you don't want the funeral to be a disaster and as a result of that there's this quite strong dynamic of it's a bit like you know no one ever got fired for buying ibm so, so when you're organizing a funeral, you're likely to, to kind of emulate the funerals that you've seen in the past. You know, people have ideas for doing wacky, different, idiosyncratic, personal things, but I think get a bit worried of, well, am I going to offend someone else in the family who thinks this is inappropriate? So, so there's this very kind of slow um, development of the sector because people don't want to get it wrong and because there isn't necessarily a lot of demand for innovation on a local high street funeral director that has that traditional brand proposition. The really interesting exception to this has been over the last few years where there's a couple of different things going on. One is that on a, on a kind of macro demographic, ethnographic um, level, you have the, the vast majority of Funeral buyers who are the kids of the deceased are used to buying and using things online. They're less religious. They're more secular, liberal, forward-thinking, less hampered and and uh, impacted by by kind of received cultural um, notions of what a funeral should look like. So there's this kind of build-up of people who want to do funerals differently. It's happened organically. Then when the pandemic hit and people needed to do funerals quite differently, 
that's really changed things around. And the best example of that is that in 2019, direct cremations, which is what we do at Farewell. So that's when body gets picked up, cremation happens, the ashes are brought back to the family and then they do their own thing. There's no going to your local authority crematorium. It's basically, well, how do you want to celebrate this person's life? In 2019, that was 1% of the market. This year, it'll be about 20% of the market. That's a huge transformation for a very, very old, slow-moving sector. And it shows that when people actually see things being done differently, they're more comfortable going and doing it themselves. It is very actually similar to, to what's happened in, in the wedding world over the last kind of 20 to 30 years. Such interesting dynamics. And to hear you, you spell out like that, it makes complete sense. Um, you know, I was just thinking like whenever I speak to people about what would you want to do when, when you die, like what would you want done? A lot of people are like, I really don't care what happens with the body. I just want people to remember me, have fun, like have a party to celebrate our times together. Like it's very much trying to shift it from like quite a dark, not negative, but like sad moment to actually like a celebration. Um, and yeah, the one funeral I went to was the opposite of that. So um, last question before we talk about farewell was um, like for anyone listening, what advice would you have about like how you go about designing like a um, like the ideal death experience? Like, is it just about trying to talk about these things much earlier on, having some kind of idea of what you may want to do as a family, as a, as a group of people? So it's a it's a really great question, and it's very individual. But I think you know, both your, your suggestions there are are really the answer. It it does come down to talking about it, and that doesn't mean you, you need to sit down and have a day-long conversation about your philosophical approach to death it really is a question of well do i want this to be an expensive and traditional affair what really matters to most people genuinely and, and just a brief interlude to answer this the reason we started our funeral business in the first place is that in our wills product which was the first thing that we launched we had hundreds of thousands of funeral wishes there's a part of making a will as we ask people for their funeral wishes. And much like what you just said, people were saying, cheap and cheerful, do it in the local pub, do it in this particular park. So we were kind of lining that up against the funeral industry that we could see today and just seeing this mismatch in what people wanted and what was on offer. So, so step one is briefly write down the type of thing that you would want. It could be generic or it could be really specific. It could be some place that you particularly love. So, Writing something down is really important in the first place. Just give your family a bit of guidance. And it's also helpful to say, you know, it's very important to say, do you want to be cremated or buried? That's pretty useful. 80% of people in the UK are now cremated. I've, I think we've found that the most useful direction is, is pretty much the tone. What people need when they're organizing a funeral is permission to celebrate that person's life. Because there's always this slight gulp did they want something somber or did they want a celebration of life? And actually, in my experience, it is 95% of people who want a celebration of their life. Then the other part of it is when it comes to actually organizing the funeral. So it, it does depend on the situation. And some people think it's only appropriate to have a celebration of life if it's, a, you know, someone had had a good innings and they're 95 and died with their family around them. We've seen some of the most amazing funerals in awful situations where you know people's kids have died and people have died in their 40s when they've got young children i'd say it's almost more important to to do it in that uh that type of horrific situation if 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 the family has um uh you know the capability to do it um it's very helpful when you're organizing a funeral if you are 
you know, very, if, if you're someone who is, is very close to the person who's died to have a sidekick, uh, you know, there's a lot of administrative, administrative stuff to do to, to, uh, bring people together. The, the number one bit of advice that, that, that I have for anyone organizing a funeral is that don't worry about the, the food or the bits and bobs that surround it or anything else. The, the number one thing that matters is bringing together everyone who loved and knew that person to, to remember what they meant to them in their lives. And the, the impression of the, the, the number of people who were affected by this person and who knew them or who some way engaged with them correlates really well with people's ability, ability to deal with grief. Sharing stories from that person's life, whether written or in eulogies or in people standing up and saying, I want to say something, is by far and away the most powerful uh, thing that I've experienced going to many funerals and often is the thing that comes out as, as the most memorable part of a funeral. The, the final part of it is we've done this bit of research where where the really challenging bit, if let's say you lose a partner or, or for anyone who's losing someone very close to them is, is, you know, the death happens, you've got this tidal wave of support for most people. You know, everyone is there for you. People who are good at it are, are helping you to organize the funeral for the first month. People are checking you the whole time. The funeral happens, that contracts to, you know, close family and close friends who are checking in on you for the next month. And then it just disappears off a cliff and people can be sitting at home with a bunch of flowers and pictures and their husbands died. And there's this kind of support gap that happens afterwards. And, and that's actually often when people really need it the most. So I think it's an important thing to remember if you, if you know, you know, someone who's going through this grieving experience is that the easy bit is the first bit where everyone else is around and it's like, you know, you can be the hero and, and, and be there for them. And it is the many months and years afterwards where, you know, if it kind of gets to the weekend and, and you think, well, what do I do? What do I want to do? Do I want to go and like play football with my friends or do I want to go around to my friend's house whose wife died and spend time with the world's most miserable bloke in a difficult situation where I have no idea what to do, trying to support him through his grief it's quite easy to go and play football. <laughs> so, so I think people feel like they've done their duty in that first one or two months. And when the rubber really hits the road for people who are, who are going through that grieving journey is, is, is afterwards. So for anyone who, who truly cares about somebody who's, who's going through that situation, it's, it's like you've got to put the effort in over time. Lots of good advice there. And, and yeah, I think that last point was something I've never really thought of either. But hearing you say that, I think back to, yeah, my nan passed away. My granddad was in his 70s, living by himself. A lot of the immediate family were all four or five hours away. Um, but we all made an effort to check in, you know, speak to him as much as possible. I was the closest, so go and see him like at least once a month. And it probably took a year, year and a half for him to get back to, to his normal self, make some new friends and get back out there. But like you say, yeah, you, you can't just assume that, yeah, a month goes by, we've done it all, like let it drop off and, and they'll be okay. Cause that's probably the, the worst moment. Yeah. Um, so let's, um, let's talk about farewell. Cause I've, I've quizzed you enough about the, the, <laughs> the death experience, um, and how the industry works. So, um, would you be able to, to share what farewell does? Yeah, absolutely. So we do three things. We help people to write their wills and then when people actually die, we uh, carry out funerals, particularly direct cremations, and we also deal with the probate process. So that's dealing with all the legal and financial things you need to wrap up after someone dies. 
Wills for us was our first product. And when we launched it initially, it was kind of very beautiful, easy to use online experience. And we focused on one number, which was the percentage of people who included personal messages or funeral wishes in their wills. So it wasn't revenue, it wasn't customer numbers, it was can we really get people to emotionally engage in in um, in what they're thinking about? And I think we did a, f- a few things right. And within 18 months of launching that, we were the, the biggest will writer in the UK. Naturally, there's this kind of quite strong link between wills and probate because lots of our wills customers will appoint us in their wills to do to, to be their executor. So when they die, we'll carry out the probate work. So so we launched our probate business quite soon after. And then, as I mentioned before, we had hundreds of thousands of these amazing funeral wishes inside our wills, and we thought there's a real opportunity to do funerals differently. So we launched our funerals business, I think four years after launching the, the will side of things. So, so overall it's a, it's, um, uh, we were kind of a digital first platform to help people both plan for and deal with death. And we have this quite interesting relationship between our, our, our three different products. A little break from the show. If you're listening and thinking, I'd love to work for a company like this, the good news is you can. Go and visit www.jobsforgood.io, where they only have four good companies on their platform, ranging from social justice to food waste to climate change and much more. You can filter jobs by impact area, preferred way of working, skill sets, and find the perfect company and position for you. So if you do one thing today, check out www.jobsforgood.io. Now back to the podcast. Yeah, no, no, when I was looking at three different products, I was also thinking you have like kind of two distinct user groups. You have like the the people writing the wills, the ones that obviously are planning for their death, but then you have um, the the funerals and probates actually for their like that person's family members who have having to deal with that stuff. Um, and I guess I'm kind of tying this in with your point earlier about um, you know people don't want to talk about death; they don't want to think about it. It's programming it, pro- programmed into us. So when you're building this kind of tech first platform, trying to educate people on like, you should think about this, like let's, let's change the experience for people in the early days. And even today, like how are you getting the word out there about farewell, about, you know, building out better experiences around death for people? So it's, I mean, it's very interesting on the will side of things, because you're completely right. Basically the one thing that I've learned as, you know, the biggest will writer in the UK, and I've been working on this now for eight years is that people really don't want to write their wills. They, you, you, it's it's on your to do B list permanently, and you don't get around to doing it. Um, so the goal for us is uh, extraordinary levels of quality and ease in the product experience itself. We really are maniacal about copywriting, simplification of the process, and, and that's just an ongoing. We have a product team permanently working on improving that experience of how people complete their wills online. And, and we're really proud of, of what we've built. It's, it's really well thought through and robust and, it, and, and we've got something like 14,000 five star reviews on Trustpilot. Um, so that's one part of it is the product experience has to be just infallible. Any tiny bit of friction is a reason for someone to say, Oh, I'm just going to go and do something else because I'm probably not going to die tomorrow. The other part of it is how, when and where you reach people um and for us a, a big driver of of uh, our wills business has been partnerships right from the gecko we actually started off doing partnerships with charities so uh one in three pounds that goes to charity in the uk comes through a gift in a will 
which is an incredible statistic. It's absolutely enormous. It's in the billions of pounds per per year. And we were very lucky to work with a few very forward-thinking charities, including Macmillan, which is obviously big sort of national profile. And what we've helped now over a thousand charities to do is raise money through gifts in wills in a quite distinctly different way to how they've done it before. So it used to be that you have in lots of charities a legacy fundraising team. They'll identify likely wealthy, older uh, donors to the charity and have a stewardship program where they invite them to different events. They meet the CEO, do these different things, and, and then they'll kind of gently suggest that they might want to include them in their will. Um, that's a long game and maybe people would put an advert, an, an advert in the Telegraph and, and, and see some gifts that materialize 15 years later. Uh, but it's very hard to actually say, right, we're going to invest in this and we're going to, we're going to try and increase the number of legacy pledges that we have because of the nature of our service, which is online product. And we can immediately give results back to the charity. We've been able to help lots of charities to use much more modern marketing techniques to increase their legacy income. So they'll typically send out emails to their supporters saying, um, you know, you can make your will. What our relationship with most charities is that they buy wills from us in bulk and then offer their wills to their supporters for free. So I'll say you can make your will for free if you're you know, a regular donor to this charity and we can give them results in 24 hours. So we'll say we can help them to A-B test different lines of copy to say, is my TV spend working versus my uh, email marketing approach. And to date, we've helped, uh, we've helped to raise, we have pledged in, in through our wills, 800 million pounds to charity, which means per head in our team, we're one of the most effective, uh, sort of fundraising organizations in the world, which is amazing. So partnerships have been very big through charities. We also work with mortgage brokers, banks, um, IFAs, life insurers. Um, and, and what we found is that you know, the, a trusted recommendation from someone who you're already dealing with cuts through a lot of the, oh, is this the right place to go? Uh, so, so partnerships has always been great for us. Referrals from you know, our own customers to, to, to their families and friends is a strong part of the business. Um, but, and, and I also think it's, 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 a, it's a brand challenge. You know, people don't want to write their wills and their, their preconceptions about it is that it's going to take many days, cost many hundreds of pounds and, and be overall a painful experience. Whereas in reality for us, it costs 90 pounds, takes 15 minutes and is incredibly seamless. So you need to manage to convey that instantaneously through, through the brand and your product marketing as well. And that's a, that's a big part of where we invested our efforts. I was actually going to ask like, how, how easy it was. And you just answered that because yeah, I'm, I'm in my mid thirties. So is my partner. We have two children. Neither of us have written a will. And it's exactly what you just said. It's like, yeah, we need to do that. Oh, I don't even know where to start. It's going to be really complicated. Like I don't even know what to put in this. I haven't even tried. Um, and then, but to hear like, so it's been built where it's going to cost under a hundred pounds. It's going to take me 15 minutes. It, it makes it like actually just removes a lot of those barriers in my head. Um, one thing you kind of touched on earlier was around like, d- like designing this incredible user experience, removing the barriers as much as possible. Um, which I assume would be part of this. Come back to your point earlier about like the mental state of this person, uh, depending on what they're, they're doing. Um, and yeah. what they're having to process. 
So yeah, it's a mixture of like trying to make it as simple and easy as possible, but also I guess there's a balance of actually making sure that they are educated and informed as much as possible. I don't, I obviously don't want to get into like nitty gritty product details, but like, is there, is there general stuff you found that's worked? Like, is it like, you know, keeping the steps really simple, but there's like kind of boxes down the side where if people need more information, they can click and find out. But if they don't need it and they know that stuff or they don't want to read it, then they can just click through the process or have you approached it differently? No, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I think we, we basically, um, a lot of the work that we do is, is, is form design and that can sound really unsexy, but form design, I think is, is, is just like the dark art of the entire <laughs> internet. How you chunk up information, how you progressively reveal it at every step. You want to minimize someone's cognitive load, but exactly like you're saying, do it appropriately. We're not just trying to get people through the door and write some random old will. We need them to really understand the decisions that they're making and the implication of those decisions. Also, for every single will that gets generated, they're checked by our specialists internally. And this isn't just like, oh, one in a hundred gets pulled out because someone's got it riddled with spelling mistakes. It's, it's rigorously going through. And if someone has made a bit of a, a funky decision or we're not clear about what they're intending, we'll write back to them individually saying, this is the implication of your decision. Are you sure that you want to go ahead with this? Here's a couple of different options. So, so it isn't just a, you know, a, a form and people click random buttons and then they have an inappropriate document for their situation. Um, it is something where the product experience itself teaches people about the decisions that they're making, empowers them to make the right choices. And then we have a, a backup system of our own specialists checking the wheels to make sure that they're fit for purpose. Needless to say, we can't, it's not the same as a face-to-face solicitor written will. It can't, we can't be a hundred percent sure about the decisions that someone's making. And, and the onus is on our customers on our online side of the business to, to, to understand the decisions that they've made. And, and, you know, there will be occasions when someone doesn't take the time to read something properly and, and there may be unintended consequences. It's the real minority. You know, miss, we've written a massive amount of wills and, and there's a handful of cases where um, where something hasn't been exactly what somebody's expected, but on a genuinely lower rate than solicitor written wills. So, so I think that the, there's there's always risk when you do something differently. But the shocking statistic is that across the entire will writing sector, including solicitors, face to face will writers, apparently twenty percent of wills have critical drafting errors inside them where they don't meet the needs of someone who's going through them. Our own standard when we've looked at it is is enormously lower than that when we've when we've kind of gone through this process of QAing, right, and we've met someone's needs. So so yeah, it's 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 always a challenge. It's often a challenge because sometimes people don't even know what they want in the first place, like you were just saying. Um, but you know, our responsibility, which we take really seriously, is to is to be as sure as we can be that someone's understood the decisions that they've made and then have this kind of backup process of checking the wills and corresponding with our customers. <clears throat> makes makes complete sense and um the the other product i want to chat to you about was the direct cremations which you explained earlier how that came about why that's becoming not just for farewell but like in in you know general for the population like a, a more popular choice for for like um funerals how are you are you going to stick with direct cremation and, and you wouldn't expand out into other funeral types um and, and does, is that linked to like your kind of philosophies and beliefs around like actually like keep it really simple and let people really celebrate the moment rather than getting bogged down into planning like a wedding-esque level style event that's just gonna add more pressure onto people at the wrong time yes we're definitely intending on sticking to direct cremation um for 
for the foreseeable. And um, it's partly it's partly just our business model. It means that we can offer really great value creations and a couple of things that we really believe in. One is affordability. We're a very mass market business. And, and that doesn't mean that, that, you know, actually the demographics the people of, of people who choose to uh, use Farewell are, are very nationally representative. It's kind of all different shapes and sizes and wealth criteria of people. But we, we have a strong philosophical stance on affordability and direct cremation is, allows us to offer very, very affordable funerals. And we also have a strong philosophical belief in simplicity because it's so confusing knowing what to do when someone's died. And the simplicity of a direct cremation removes a lot of the, um, it's, it's not, it's unfair to describe it as unnecessary because it's what different people want, but it is the simplest way to, to do, um, the body side of a funeral. What happens after direct cremation is, is an endless world of possibility where people aren't, uh, you know, chained to the whim of their local funeral director who's kind of pulling the strings and can decide to, to, uh, you know, shape the ceremony however they want. It gives people real possibility to do things differently, whether they want to have a celebration of life in their house or their garden or on top of the South Downs or on a local beach or wherever, whenever is appropriate for them. So the thing that we love about direct cremation is it gives people control of the timeline, gives people control of the cost. It gives people unlimited possibility for deciding exactly what the right thing to do is for them. And as soon as you start to say, right, we're in the local authority crematorium and actually everyone is already there at that, you know, slightly strange, um, uh, sort of council building and then we kind of got to do a tea party afterwards and then you know the funeral is kind of done and the timelines are set it's all chain linked together so it reduces the possibilities it increases the cost doing things like that and those are all counter to what we believe actually helps people to properly celebrate someone's life and deal with grief so direct creation is the way forwards for us it's the fastest growing part of the market it speaks to the to the kind of real motivations of a lot of um more modern customers and it's something we do uniquely well we can't lay claim to being the best people at doing an attended burial or an attended creation because we're not geographically distributed like that we're not the local experts in a particular crematorium and how it works what we are experts in is simplifying the process of actually dealing with the body of, 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 of your loved one and then giving you the support and encouragement and permission to, to really think about what you want to do to celebrate this person's life afterwards. Yeah, I, a lot of that uh, appeals to me. Like if I think about how I'd like it to be dealt with, I, I'd, I'd prefer that I was had a direct cremation and then it relieves, like you said, just so much pressure from, from my family, from whoever's dealing with stuff. It gives so much more options, flexibility, um yeah makes complete sense um next question was gonna we're, we're seeing quite a lot of people who choose to have quite a long period of time between the cremation taking place and then a send-off and and sometimes i think that can be really nice for the reasons we were talking about before of like there's this tidal wave of support and then it goes to nothing we've had some amazing ones where two to three months after the cremation itself there's been a send-off the family is able to be more present at the time because they've dealt with that you know initial shock of grief 
and they've been able to organize really spectacular went to an incredible funeral um an incredible send-off that was 250 people um everyone in a big marquee everyone brought food so it wasn't like a catered thing everyone just brought their own food and everyone's sharing it lots of people getting up to talk about what this person had meant to them in their life everyone then walking up to the top of the southbounds and and scattering her ashes it was amazing really beautiful moving not expensive totally right for the family and for the person who who died and i think it would have been an impossibility and if, if that was done in a more kind of conventional mindset absolutely and next i was going to ask if you could um just give the listeners like an idea of like the the scale of fairbill now in terms of like revenue funding uh headcount uh users uh, and the second part of that question is like based on that scale that you are today like what is the number one challenge for you like what keeps you up at night is it sales products yeah yeah so so we've raised about 30 million pounds from a bunch of great different venture capital funds and and angel investors um i won't go into detail on the revenue side of things um but we're the largest will writer in the uk and we write about one in ten wills we're one of the largest probate providers we've also been national probate provider of the year we've been national will writing firm of the year for the last four years in a row um with the I think we're the second largest direct creation provider in the UK. So, so you know, every year we, we, we have hundreds of thousands of customers overall. And the, the main challenge, kind of go right back to what I was talking about at the beginning, is, is customer acquisition. You know, still have this, this um, uh, quite entrenched way of buying and using services that relate to both planning for and dealing with death, which is, well call my dad and ask him where he wrote his will, or I'll go to the local high street and go into the funeral area that I've seen um, that I've walked past a thousand times. And that is really starting to change, but there isn't, there isn't a kind of new normal of how people will go and do it. It's not like you there's compare the market for funerals, for instance. So we're in a very interesting period where, where sort of customer origination, how people find out and buy and compare and use these services is changing very quickly. A lot of it is now moving online, as you can imagine, where the starting point is online, but it's still the starting point is someone Googling their local funeral directors rather than than truly kind of scanning the market for what to um, buy and use. So, so we really focus on being at the forefront of the modern evolution of customer acquisition. On wills, that's largely through partnerships. On probate and and cremations, it's a lot of search, both organic and and paid search. And in the future, we're we're launching another product doing um, prepaid funeral plans for direct cremations, and that's a really interesting brand and marketing challenge. Where I think we're going to diversify into into more kind of above the line channels. TV is actually a very interesting one. Um, so so I think. Yeah, things are changing very quickly and and finding out how to engage people, not just on the high street, is the, the kind of core strategic challenge for, for us over the next few years. Nice. Well, I look forward to seeing hopefully some adverts and uh, more of Farewell out and about <laughs> as a... Uh... Um, as you, as you work on those things, um, I always like to spend some time with the guests talking about more like your personal journey. And, um, yeah, I guess I want to start with the fact that you've been, you know, CEO and founder f- 
for eight years, I think it's been. Um, how has your role changed? Like, what are you work, what are you focusing on today versus like how does that your role look when you first? Obviously, very different when you start out. Yeah, yeah. When you first first start, it's just you know you just do everything. You have to learn about accounting, HR, hiring. Definitely, hiring's really important thing to learn about um, from the beginning. So every different function, other than what my co-founder uh, oversaw, which was technology, um, I've had to, and I've really enjoyed getting to understand and then and then hiring people and building them out. Um, my I think the stuff I'm good at is is uh, raising money, partnerships, the product vision side of what we're doing. Um, I I think you would probably get strongly worded letters from my own employees and investors if I claim to be uh, an operational guru. Um, I'm 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 not. My my strengths don't lie in in the operating side of of the business and. Um, for quite a long time, I think I tried to compensate for that. And I worked really hard on the operational side of the business before you know, getting the wise advice that my job isn't to be good at those things. It's to find and build the right team who are. So, so you know, it evolves from just doing a bit of everything, discovering what you're good at, where your strengths lie, um, to where it is today, which is three things, kind of put the dot on the horizon so where are we all heading as a business and why are we even doing this in the first place? Build the team around me. And that's predominantly the executive team. And then you know, they're obviously responsible for building their own team. And then setting the tone, which is the, the cultural side of it and the, you know, the, the principles um, that, that we work by. Um, yeah, so, so I think that's the, that's the high level way that I see my own role is I have to do those three things really well. And then it's like, you know, some giant fire happens every week and every day and every hour in a different area. And, and you've got to get together with other people in the company and figure out what to do. Um, so that can be fundraising related. It can be, you know, the SVB banking crisis that just happened where, where you really quickly have to make those sorts of decisions. It can be some kind of customer complaint that we haven't seen before and how we respond to it. Um, yeah. So, so I think. Where I spend a lot of my time is is um, I read every bit of customer feedback that comes through the company, even today. That's like that's very interesting seeing how it evolves. Um, a lot of it is spending time in product reviews, so that could be down to copywriting or 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 wireframes of what we're thinking about doing next, um, and then spending time understanding what's happening in other countries, how those markets are developing, what our competitors are doing, building relationships with our, with our competitors, um, you know, making sure that, that from a fundraising perspective, we have a good idea of comps in our market, what's happening in the public market side of things, um, building relationships with PE firms, potential acquirers to keep those sorts of options open as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, no two weeks are the same. But I always come back to those three things of is the vision clear enough? Is the team at the top of the company absolutely exceptional? And is it really clear to everyone in the business what the tone is? How do we do work together and what do we really value? And and that's taken me eight years to get half decent at it. I've got a, 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 I've got much further to go. 
Yeah, I don't know. It sounds like you're pretty self-aware. And I think, you know, some loads of good points. I'm going to repeat it all. But like for me, the main thing that from speaking to a lot of founders like on that journey is you start off doing everything. And I think the ones that are six, the most successful, the ones that are quicker to realize and become self-aware of these are my key strengths. I'm not going to be able to really work on this other stuff. Like I've tried. It's just not my thing. Play to my strengths. Find people that are better at me in these other areas that could do that stuff. Um, and like you said, you need one of the, one of the founding team or exec team to be like the visionary to always be thinking ahead and, and like guarding that direction of, of where the company's going. So very, very insightful. I'm going to jump to a question, which was, um, I've heard you speak out before about your experience with burnout and, and like sadly even today, like nearly all of the founders I know and work with push themselves to their limits because they care so much about what they're doing. They feel pressured, whatever the, the myriad of, of reasons might be. Just wonder if you could share a bit about that experience that you had and more importantly, like now, how you like hopefully better manage your well-being. Yeah. Um, I, so, so I burnt out in 2018. Right? And I also, I was always very skeptical about whether burnout actually existed or not. And I have said, I thought I was like, well, you know, you just didn't have the guts. And I prided myself on my ability to work really hard, whether it was at university or afterwards, I could regularly do 18 hours a day, just <clears throat> seven days a week, on and on and on. And I loved it. Great. And and I think my understanding of where burnout comes from is 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 not to do with working hard. It's to do with unreasonable or just unachievable expectations. You have these expectations of what's going to happen and you just, whatever you try and do, you're not making progress towards it. I think that's personally what, what happened to me. And I literally just collapsed in the street, which is, which is, which sounds very melodramatic, but it was like, I was so frazzled that I collapsed and then I had to take a couple of weeks off work. And it probably took me six months to feel like I could kind of get back to, 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 um, to, to my best. Um, and I think the reason why I think there's much more burnout now than probably 20 or 30 years ago. I, I, I used to listen to a lot of podcasts like how I built this and very tech focused podcasts. My favorite one that I listen to now, other than yours, Craig, <laughs> is um, this podcast called Founders. And it's this great guy that I don't know if you ever listen to it called David Senro, who, who basically reads people's biographies and, and reviews them in an hour. And a lot of the people whose biographies he's reading, it could be like Churchill or, or Napoleon or the founder of Dunkin' Donuts. But it's like a lot of businesses that are older businesses. That guy started Walmart. And part of the dynamics of, of the venture capital world is this, you know, outlier mentality. Venture capital fund backs 10 companies. You want one of them to be worth 100x and nine of them, whatever, they can hit the wall. Hopefully some of them will do okay. And that's not, I'm not saying that to criticize venture capitalists, but incredibly supportive kind, generous, loyal people on our board. And, and for the most part, everyone I've interacted with has been fantastic. But the business model is really shoot for me. And, and that isn't always the right strategy for every company. And I, I don't think, I don't, you know, I, I think that we have a great shot at building an industry and category defining company and we're well on the path to doing that. But some companies can grow 400% a year, five years in a row. And in other industries, it's much harder to drive that kind of change. And for me, I had unrealistic expectations that I set myself. It wasn't even external investors saying, you know, if you go pitch for, to raise money, and you're telling people that you can grow the business 4x next year and 4x a year after that. And I think that unrealistic scaling aspiration and desperately trying to, to not fail at doing that was, I think it was, 
probably unfair to say it was impossible for us to do that. But I tried as hard as I could, and a lot of other people in our company tried as good, and we, we just couldn't get on that kind of track. The the most powerful antidote to burnout is realistic expectations. That doesn't mean you're not ambitious, but it means that you're not just wildly making shit up because that's what you need in order to raise money, and that's what you need in order to be competing against someone else who's making up wild, unrealistic numbers. So we've gone through this whole cycle of, you know, very exciting early days of the business, glory days of the business when growth was fantastic. And, and then just being like, we're losing money and we're, we're chasing numbers that we made up in an irresponsible way that isn't providing more value for our customers or our shareholders. And then we had to, as many companies have, have been through more recently, have a reckoning with reality. And the, the joy of running the business with a realistic hat on being able to do our best work creatively with the proper constraints, not arbitrary ones that you're always missing, is is a totally different ballgame. And I don't feel remotely burnt out. I'm able to work harder um, in a more realistic setting because, because we know what we're doing and we understand our market, we understand what we can achieve. And and so so I think that's the that's the journey that I've been through personally. And I think unfortunately. Lots of other founders will just, you just have to go through it. You have to go through through that thing of being like, these aspirations were too high and it was really hard and now I have to be more realistic. The job is to be realistic and ambitious, not to not to just wildly promise things that we can't achieve. 100%. And I think it's been a really tough um, year and a half, two years for the tech industry with this, as you said, reckoning. I think it was much needed though. It's brought everyone back down to reality and stopped all these silly conversations around, yeah, like 50x growth and what VCs are after and, and, um, what founders are having to talk about and promise to get money and, and then the pressures that come with that money. And it's not just the founders that suffer from this. Like I'm sure your team would have been feeling it before when you, when you have these ridiculous targets to try and shoot for. Like it's not healthy for anyone. Whereas I'm sure now everyone's more like we have realistic targets. We have a really clear direction. This is totally achievable. I believe in the mission. This is going to be so much more fun, <laughs> you know, than, than when there's that mounting pressure of we're just getting nowhere near to this, this target we've set. Yeah. Yeah. I think another part of it is when you're so far behind your targets. You know, you, if, you, if you're like 50%, you're going to miss a target by 50%. I found our reaction to that was to change strategy. Well, our strategy must be wrong. So now we need a new strategy that's going to give us a shot at making up the shortfall. So for a long time, we had this just strategic fatigue of everyone constantly having to change direction because we're just scrabbling around trying to hit these targets that we made up in the first place. We've had the same strategic priorities in our company for the last six quarters in a row. This is the same wording. It's the right plan. We're diligently executing on the plan and we've never been doing better as a result. And it all comes down to the fact that our targets are right. Absolutely. Um, and my, my last section, just a couple of questions about like building the business, but from like a people perspective. Um, one thing I really liked when I was checking out Fairwell's website in the, you know, the kind of careers page like area was the, the open sourced um, handbook. And obviously I've read through it. I know what it is, but could you just explain for listeners what that handbook is, why you decided to make it publicly available um, and how, how you use that as a company? Oh, great. I'm really glad you like that. Um, yeah, I think, I think I was very lucky early, early days in the business to have in our, our first seed investor, Kindred Capital, had this incredible talent partner called Michelle Coventry, who I'm still very close to, who is the, the, the wizard of Oz of of everything people related and taught me and my co-founder 
how to hire um uh, how, how to really do hiring very very well and I still today think that it's on every podcast you listen to about how to build a business people talk about the importance of hiring but then in my experience with other founders actually they'll just get distracted by something else it is the number one thing to be good at and you need to be good at it across the board you need to write the best job specs you need to have the best interview process you need to do the hardest, fastest, most personal outreach from the CEO directly for important roles. There have been many weeks where I've spent most of the hours in my week writing messages to people on LinkedIn, scraping emails, interviewing people. And a lot of that is wasted time because, you know, it's not the right fit. But every single A player person that you can bring into the company, particularly more senior in the organization, but it matters across the board, is game changing, especially if you've only got three people in the company. Um, so. We always in really, really invested in in the job spec is an advert. It shouldn't. It's not just oh, hello, we're this company. Here's the requirements of what we're looking for. You're asking someone who probably has an amazing job already to change their career to join a random business they likely haven't heard of at this earlier stage. That job spec better be the most compelling thing that you've ever read, and the interview process and the first interaction you have with a candidate better be the most compelling thing that you've ever. Uh, experience. So if I'm interviewing someone, the first five minutes of talking to them, I'm pitching harder than, I've, than I would pitch to a VC. You know, VC is there to spend money. It's how they make money. They want to find a good company to put cash into. Someone else who's a C-level executive in a fast-growing, well-liked, well-known company, I'm going to have to pitch pretty hard to get them to possibly entertain leaving their role and coming to join our company. So you've got to go at it at a thousand miles an hour. Um, and a lot of what people are looking for is, is the right culture to join. So, um, the handbook that you've read is a description of our culture. Actually, we have a new one that's coming out, uh, that's coming out soon. And similar, similarly to the job specs, that's for, for, we owe it to our own team and we owe it to people externally who are looking at joining the company to provide a, 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 a very, compelling and accurate description of how we do things internally so um yeah we put a lot of work into it and and we found time and time again that people joining the company have 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 said you know that's that was one of their reasons for joining is that the, the, the way we described how we do work internally really spoke to them and it's exactly the way that they want to work as as a recruiter it's like the the dream to see stuff like that and i'm going to just pick out two things you said and, and one is everyone has this buzzword of employer branding and it's like this flowery concept that everyone talks about, but no one really knows how to get it right. And for me, it's really about like being very raw, authentic, um, cause every careers page you go on looks, looks and talks about the same stuff. And it's, it's just like going onto any kind of like marketing website and you see stuff being said. Whereas I think when you see something like the handbook, you can see the amount of care and effort that's gone into that, the thought, and it gives you a real sense of what it would be like to work for your business, which is very hard to communicate. Um, through kind of like, you know, marketing jargon. Um, so that's the one thing. And then the second thing as a recruiter, I completely agree. Like as somebody who works mainly with those, say startups, there's a lot of um, ignorance of, of like, you need to work as hard, if not harder to get that person and attract them to your business as like you spend assessing them. And I think sometimes that gets lost. So I'm exactly the same in terms of advocating that the very first interaction with your company needs to be with the senior person, if not a founder. And that's as much, you know, you trying to get them really excited and bought into seeing the process through and seriously considering joining you is it's like you trying to get anything out of them 
because the second stage for me is like about the really deep assessment. The first stage is really about attraction. Um, so yeah, thank you for sharing that because that's something I deeply believe in as well. Oh, I'm glad to hear from you that that's, that, that stuff makes sense. Good. <laughs> Um, cool. Well, look, Dan, I've I've taken up more than enough of your time, but it's been such a great conversation and I'm definitely going to be writing my will <laughs> very shortly after this using Farewell. Um, for anyone that wants to follow the Farewell journey, like wh- where's the company most active on social media? Uh, on Twitter. Um, uh, or we also will kind of publish updates about what we're doing on, on farewell.com. Um, and uh, yeah, really, really appreciate you having me on. And my job here is... Is, is done if you're going to go away and write your will so uh, thank you so much for your, for your time and for having me on the show no it's been a real pleasure thank you cheers Dan that's it for today's episode thanks for listening and if you haven't done so already please subscribe and leave a review better yet tell a friend about the show the more people we can get involved the more hope we have for making the world a better place this episode was brought to you by Craig Turner produced by Jabril Al-Sahami and sponsored by Jobs for Good until next time <laughs>